1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Leo Valdez. I am your host on the LGBTQ Studies channel of the New Books New Books Network. Today, my guest is Leah Devon. Leah is an Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University. She focuses on the history of gender, sexuality, science, and medicine in pre-modern Europe, and on contemporary queer and transgender studies. Her first book, Prophecy, Alchemy, and the End of Time, won the 2013 John Nicholas Brown Prize for an outstanding first book on medieval history. She has published articles in the GLQ, WSQ, Journal of the History of Ideas, among others, and co-edited, along with seb Tortorici, Trans Historicities, a special issue of the Transgender Studies Quarterly, published in 2018. Leah is also an artist and curator whose work explores queer, feminist, and gender nonconforming history. Her work has appeared in the One Archives Gallery, the Leslie Lohman Museum, and the Houston Center for Photography, among other venues. Today, we will be discussing Leah's second book, The Shape of Sex Non Non Binary Gender from Genesis to the Renaissance, published in 2021 by Columbia University Press. And I found out just now that The Shape of Sex sold out of its first printing. Congratulations, Leah, and thank you very much for being here with me today.
0: Thanks so much, and thanks for having me.
1: So I wanted to start out with a quote from your introduction. You write, This study bears witness to the considerable burden that sex and gender marginalized people shouldered in meaning-making and human-making in the history of pre-modern Europe. This book is therefore about language and fundamental ways of thinking, about how our ideas about sex and anatomy are never just about a physical act or about our physical bodies. Instead, they are always ideas about what it means to be human and what it means to be a self in relation to other selves and to the world. Can you explain this quote a little bit? what do you mean when you say gender-marginalized people shouldered a considerable burden in meaning-making and human-making? And how is your book about fundamental ways of thinking?
0: Yes, and I'd like to say that I don't think gender-marginalized people shouldered in the past only a considerable burden in this meaning-making, but rather they continue to as well. And what I mean when I say that is that in thinking about gender-marginalization and thinking about non-binary gender, people in the past and people in the present, as scholars and activists have rightly pointed out, often use gender marginalized people as instruments or ideas to think with, as tools to take apart systems of gender or sexuality. And this involves a sort of level of abstraction in thinking about categories and thinking about um, organization and abstracting gender gender marginalized people to make this sort of thought problem happen is incredibly dehumanizing. And this dehumanization is done in the service of constructing uh, social and intellectual systems and in analyzing them. Um, So gender marginalized people, without making any kind of choice about being involved in this process, thus get mobilized to create systems in ways that don't take much notice of them as real human beings. Um, They're not treated as as peers, as collaborators in creating systems, not as living, breathing humans, but rather as tropes, as metaphors, as things to think with. And that's what I mean about this process of organizing society, you know, deciding what it means to be male or female by thinking about how um, non-binary people uh, uh, put pressure on that system of organization. um, And... Uh, using non-binary people as ideas to think about uh, all sorts of divisions um, in um, the geographic world, in the natural world, um, in in our racial categories. And this kind of thinking places a huge burden on actual non-binary sex and gender marginalized people in creating these kinds of systems.
1: Mm, That makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me of the opening anecdote of your book, which is about Berengaria, is that how you pronounce her name? That's correct. Yes. Um, can you just tell the readers a little bit about her story? because it she appears in the introduction and then a little bit later, later on in the book. And she's kind of a central figure in a way. yes, i I think in a way she is the central figure of the book. Hmm. she's
0: She's part of where I started in my thinking. She starts the book, and I keep coming back to her over and over again. Um, the book opens with with it's just a, a really explicit uh, medical, what's well, a legal record, but it gives a medical record. A surgeon examines her body and gives us a very detailed uh, a, a explanation of his very invasive process of looking at and analyzing her body. And, uh, it, you know, it was a real difficult decision about um, the ethics of reproducing that account because it really does... Um, you know, lay bare a, a human being's body uh, in this very invasive way. Uh, but at the same time period, at the same time, it, you know, this happened to a person and to hide it would also be to hide, uh, you know, this very terrible experience that this person had. So what I try to do in the book is because we don't hear anything from Berengaria about what she thinks about her own body, you know, what her own, identity or desires are the book in a way is trying to put back together the world of Berengaria, what she might have experienced, what might have been the rules that shaped her life, what might have happened to her and that's I guess the way that I can try to pay back Berengaria for the way that we we learn about her um, and the way that you know the story about this gender-marginalized person is revealed to us on what was probably the worst day of her life. And That's the case with so many of these individuals that we learn about from the distant past. We get them because they ran afoul of some court and we have a court case. Or they encountered a physician and we have a medical case. And uh, in none of these cases are the individual who is the subject, the person who is uh, sex or gender variant, are they allowed to speak for themselves? Um, and that's not unique to the pre-modern archive, by the way, but, but it's certainly very poignant in my book because so many people are speaking for gender marginalized people um, in the book.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And just to, just to recap um, for the listeners, Berengaria, um, the reason she appears in the archive is because her husband petitions the court to have his marriage to her annulled because she can't fulfill the marriage contract of bearing children.
0: That's right. And a surgeon examines her and his analysis is that she's not a woman. Um, And he describes her anatomy in, in great detail and says, she's really more like a man than a woman. And so she can't uh, have passive sexual intercourse with any man nor bear a child so you know the idea is that she you know she can't fulfill her duties that are expected of a woman of her time period you know to get pregnant and bear a mm-hmm. child and raise a child and so you know that's that's generally grounds for annulment of the marriage and um, and that's how we end up finding her in this snippet of a court case in uh, in a medieval manuscript in a, a, in a small archive in Girona Spain. <laughs>
1: How did you find the archive? The picture on the on the second page is a picture of that legal document, right?
0: It is. And you can see it's a very it's a very kind of worm eaten uh, legal document. I found this through a lead of another scholar. But I I think that it's, you know, one of the things I really want to emphasize is, you know, this experience. And that's why I included the image um, you know, the, the, work that's involved in finding these kinds of fragmentary stories in, um, in manuscripts, uh, in, in archives that hold these, um, uh, these medieval pre-modern sources. Um, and I would love to talk more about, about archives in general and, and what, um, what these manuscripts are like, if you'll, if you'll indulge me. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Because, uh, you know, these are these are written on, um, on pieces of animal skin. For those who aren't familiar with what a medieval manuscript is like, um, hmm. and it's written by hand. You know, someone someone wrote it in handwriting, and then a lot of these documents are um, accompanied by little hand painted what are called illuminations or little little illustrated paintings. So they're also not just written out in Latin, like in this document, um, but they're in abbreviated Latin. So um, so you have to learn a special a skill called paleography to be able to read them. But even then, each hand is kind of unique, you know? It's like anybody's handwriting, you know? It's, totally. Even your 21st century handwriting might be hard to read. Well, 14th century handwriting <laughs> might be very unfamiliar and hard <laughs> to read. So part of the process is not just finding the the you know, the interesting piece in the archive and being able to go there and and get it by hand, because in general, pre-modern sources aren't digitized. You know, they aren't something that we can just look up online. We have to actually go there and get the manuscript out and look at it. But then we might not at first be able to read it. And so we got to kind of like focus our eyes until that the words kind of become familiar enough that they sort of crystallize into things you can read. So it's a, it's, I want to try to, to communicate that the process of doing research in this period is, is kind of like this um, deciphering some secret, you know, or like kind of mm-hmm. like a, some detective work and it's very tactile. And, um, and I think it's, that's part of what's very exciting about it is to, um, to be able to be engaged with these documents that, You know, are like seven hundred years old, and just to think about all the hands that have held them, and you know, all the all the changes that have occurred, you know, surrounding these kinds of um, objects, and I think that's that's part of what draws me into this period of of history, and um, it makes it more me even more meaningful to me to find a story like this in one of those manuscripts.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, the picture, I love the picture because you don't, you didn't cut off your own hand, your own hand appears in the image, or what I assume is your it hand. Is. And, <laughs> and you have a glove on too. You can't even touch it, I assume with your because because it'll deteriorate even further. So there's all these, it, it's a really delicate, it's a really delicate archive as well. And I mean, without this, her entire story would be lost because this is all that appears about Berengaria. There's nothing else about her. No, none of her own opinions. We hear nothing from her own voice. And could you speak a little bit about that? Because you know, and some the thought that occurred to me when I was reading your book, and of course I read other books that discuss the ar- archival violences and these problems. But I was like, what a cruel joke, <laughs> really. This for for us as marginalized people wanting to do marginalized histories now, and it's it's a double marginalization, right? Of of like not having um not having her own words appear and then us not being able to connect with the past w- through the words of other gender marginalized people so could you talk a little bit about that complexity i know you touched a little bit about it at first but it's it's just you know it's very very salient theme throughout your entire book
0: yeah i i think yeah, as historians, we're we're often in this bind, right? So I like said, you know, we encounter these people often on their on their worst day, and we encounter them through the institutions that make this encounter possible, right? So for this period, it's often, um, you know, a legal institution, an ecclesiastical institution, and a medical institution, and in general, uh, what we get are the the words of elites, right? Um, mm-hmm. Most people during this time period are um, uh, are not literate, but even if they are, they're not um, generally in a situation that allows them to leave behind written records that we're then gonna find centuries later, right? So we mm-hmm. find the records that are written by elite, mostly male writers, and they're, they're not interested often in asking for you know the voice and the subjectivity of uh, of the individual who is uh, who is the the subject of the record and even when they are as is, is the case with a few of my records they're the the authority is eliciting information from somebody under you know under duress in, in a mm-hmm in the context of a court case, in the context of you know, this extreme pressure. And so we really can't take at face value whatever that, might, that person might have said about you know, what their, their inner feelings are uh, about their gender or you know, what their desires are for the future. So it, it is a, it's a very difficult uh, ethical process to figure out how to recover uh, these kinds of voices from the past uh, and to try to do justice to them as agents, you know, mm-hmm. as people who, um, who had feelings and thoughts and desires um, that make it difficult to capture them. I think that I find a lot of inspiration in, uh, I mean, like I said, this isn't unique to the pre-modern archive and many scholars who work on um, histories of enslaved women, for instance, uh, histories of um, uh, colonial subjects subaltern subjects have done really important really creative work in trying to help us understand how we might access those voices in you know in 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 different imaginative ways and I, I find a lot of um, utility and inspiration in following that kind of scholarship and I try to apply it to my own work in you know knowing that we're never going to be able to uh, to to truly, Meticulously document what someone like Berengaria thought, but that we can do that—it's still meaningful what we have about her, and I think it's still important as an archive of uh, of gender marginalized history, despite some of those limitations on what we can say about it.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So, continuing with this archival theme, but turning it a little bit to, in a different direction. Your book, of course, is on the medieval period. So, you know, that fall of the Roman Empire, essentially to the beginning of, the, of pre-modern Europe and the Renaissance. Um, I was struck, you know, your your archive is diverse. You use religious texts, uh, visual art, encyclopedias, surgical manuals, um, maps. And one of the... one. One, one thing that I found interesting was you make the point that in the visual illustrations that you use that where non-binary sex figures emerge, that they're not rare, that they're actually widely reproduced images. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the prevalence of non-binary sex figures during the medieval period?
0: Yes, and I think that in a way this goes to the heart of one of the things I want to argue, in my book, and what I hope that readers will take away from it, which is we tend to think, and certainly it's argued in our political sphere in the 21st century, that non-binary gender, uh, transgender gender nonconformity is new, and hence extremely threatening to tradition, right? Mm-hmm. And part of what I want to do in my book is show that it's not new. That ideas people who are sex and gender variant have been with us for a very long time. And that debates about how non-binary individuals, how non-binary ideas fit into society and how uh, society organizes itself has been going on for centuries, millennia <laughs> and uh, that people in the past thought just as deeply, just as creatively and just as, uh, 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 as a vibrant uh, discussion and controversy as we have now occurred in the past over some of these same kinds of questions. So in documenting these, uh, these types of texts uh, across so many genres of literature and across a broad timeframe, that was part of what I wanted to show was that this is a history that is um, uh, a history that is uh, it's, it's not marginal. It's not trivial. Um, these images are not just a few, they are many, they are widespread, and they um, they intervene in a lot of the most important, most fundamental kinds of categories and narratives that we put together for pre-modern history. And because of their prevalence, and I think because of their instrumental value in those conversations, they really can't be left out of that history.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Absolutely. And Onto those fundamental categories, you absolutely situate yourself within discussions of the human. And, you know, you cite critical race studies scholars, you cite um, animal studies scholars. What does your book about non-binary gender from the Genesis to the Renaissance, what contributions um, does looking at non-binary sex individuals make to understandings of the category of the human?
0: Yeah, I I think both in terms of, of our modern world and in terms of the past, we can see that um, the kind of ethical consideration that's afforded to humans, right? Uh, inclusion in the community, the um, right to freedom from ostracization, from physical violence, is accorded differently to people based on sex and gender. Certainly we can argue that now, you know, who's... Um, entitled to life chances, who's protected from harm and death Um, uh, happens very differently based on whether people are perceived to have normal gender, right? Or, or sex. Um, And so I think that the way that the category of the human um, affords that protection to um, individuals and communities is deeply inflected by, um, by perceptions of Uh, sex and gender conformity. And so, too, with the past, we see over and over again uh, the accusation of non-binary sex being used as an instrument to dehumanize um, groups of people who are then marked for um, expulsion from a community or territory or uh, or for large-scale physical attack. So um, I think that uh, that Part of what I do, and you mentioned critical race scholars, um, I am uh, deeply influenced by scholars who are writing about um, about race and the way that race um, uh, critically shapes ideas about the human. And I'm absolutely following scholars like um, Kim Hall, like Geraldine Hang, who say for us to really understand the development of uh, racial categories, we need to go all the way back to the medieval period. We need to go all the way back to um, these moments where we can see the development of some um, uh, very important um, ways of understanding the nexus of embodied and cultural difference that um, we now tend to recognize as, as race, where we start to see the formation of those kinds of ideas. And what I want to add to that conversation is during that period those ideas about physical and cultural difference are also completely entangled with ideas about gender. Um, So that um, racial difference, religious difference and gender difference are really um, implicated in the ways that European Christians during the time period that I'm looking at construct hierarchies of people and um, and uh, limits on who can be accepted as a human member of the community. Hmm.
1: Yeah, this, this becomes very clear in your second chapter, the monstrous races mapping the borders of sex. Um, I wanted to touch on this a little bit. Um, it, it was a fascinating chapter and the word monster monstrosity is such a powerful word. Um, I, I, I just so listeners know, like a lot of the chapters based on the English Hereford map. The, Hereford, uh, yes. Hereford, okay. <laughs> Hereford map of the world. And you discuss how there's a turbaned male-female figure at the geographic edge of the map in an area representing Ethiopia, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. And, and so there are entanglements here between non-binary sex and race. Um, can you speak a little bit more about that and speak a little bit about how readers can understand how you're using race in this book.
0: Yeah. Let me, let me start with the first question about the figure on the Hereford map. And then, mm-hmm. and then let's come back to uh, how I use the word race in that chapter and a little bit about uh, the, the complications of talking about monsters and race. Um, so uh, the image on the Hereford map, um, is uh, a turban figure who, as you say, is kind of bilaterally split down the middle with, uh, with physical features that we stereoty- stereotypically associate with, um, uh, with women on one side and with men on the other. And there's a caption that says, uh, this is a race of two sexes. They're unnatural in many of their customs and the turban and, um, the iconography as, uh, art historians have have pointed out would have been instantly recognizable as depicting a a Saracen, which is the derogatory term for a Muslim during the time period. So by invoking the idea of the monstrous races, which I'll explain in just a moment and placing this Muslim figure in Africa and Africa is depicted as sort of bereft of civilization, really in contrast to the rest of the um, uh, more central areas of the map that show a lot of, um, uh, uh, building and kind of like human community and this is really like nothingness uh, and there's a string of monsters um, that are depicted and some are depicted as Jewish and this one is depicted as Muslim and they're depicted as, uh, as uh, outside of civilization really at kind of the barren edge of the world and lacking in the kind of structures that that one would associate with, with um, human construction of society So um, they're they're really uh, constructed as inferior, barbarous, um, and monstrous. And there's a legend that was very uh, popular during that time period called the so-called Legend of the Monstrous Races. This was the idea uh, for Europeans that in places that seemed remote to Europeans, um, for instance, in Africa and Asia or the eastern edge of the world to them, um, they imagined that uh, tribes of people with very unusual bodies and customs sort of roamed around. Um, and these included all kinds of peoples, like um, people with uh, faces on their backs and, and chests, and um, people with uh, like cyclops, people with the heads of dogs. And included among these was a race of what were called androgyny or hermaphrodites. And uh, they were uh, imagined to have both male and female physical body parts, and to switch back and forth between male and female um, sexual or social roles. And this map image is depicting this Muslim as a member of that half male, half female monstrous race who transitions back and forth between a male category and a female category. So it's, it's definitely a dehumanizing image. It's an image that um, appears on a map that is, um, that was used in part, uh, as a part of, um, well, I think we can say propaganda for, um, for Christian incursions in, um, in the near East, uh, in the series of wars that are now often called the crusades and that images like this and other similar images played a role in justifying, uh, violence against humans who were here shown to be not quite human, like Europeans were, um, through all of these kinds of iconographical signals. Hmm. Okay, so monster, monster is a complicated term. It meant, Hmm. of course, uh, boundary crossers, uh, uh, creatures with some kind of aberrant physical um, shape or practice that transgressed a norm in Europe. But sometimes monsters also meant um, what we would call um, a disability. Or a morphological difference, and so at the same time that uh, that European Christians were displacing uh, monsters to the far edges of the world, um, in the case of non-binary sex, they also identified so-called monsters, and they use the word hermaphrodites to talk about monsters who were born in Europe too. So, you know, this language is very derogatory, of course, and and. And offensive in, in the modern world. Um, but these are the words that, um, that European Christians at the time used to discuss intersex people. So often uh, in the case of, of uh, non-binary sex, there was sort of a dual imagination where non-binary sex was something that was used to dehumanize peoples outside the community, but it was also sometimes used as a way to reflect on differences that were um, within the community too so in a way um non-binary sex does sort of transgress this inside outside here um there you know um us and them um, by really complicating binaries i think during this time period uh european thinkers seized on the idea of non-binary sex often to indicate something that crossed between two fields and this is no um this is, this is a, another example of that. Okay, I've talked for a while. I can talk more about race, too, or we can, <laughs> we can move on.
1: No, it's okay. You, you, no, it was, it was great. Um, I, I did want to ask a follow-up question. I think it comes up in that chapter and may come up a little bit later, but I, I think you mentioned that there were differences between Muslim and Islamic traditions and Latin European traditions with regards to sexual categories of humans think you mentioned how Islamic traditions did not degrade non-binary sex individuals, at least not all the time during this large period that you're covering, um, or, or they didn't depict them as monsters as frequently as Latin Europe. Could you give us a little bit more detail about that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you've just said it, um, you know, uh, I- at least for the, for the Ottoman world, uh, there, there isn't the same kind of, um, uh, there, there isn't the same kind of, use of words like monster use of words like unnatural um there is more of a a pragmatic approach to kuntha to intersex individuals and efforts to uh to um to in a in a sort of um uh pragmatic way, figure out how to fit people into what roles in society are um, going to be appropriate for that person. And we can see similar things in rabbinic law, um, where we have categories of androgynous and tum-tum. And we've got um, you know, jurists and intellectuals thinking about these categories and um, thinking about uh, how classification works and how to integrate individuals who are affected into different kinds of social roles. So I, it, it's, it, it is other scholars have, you know, pointed out, um, you know, who are, who are, uh, experts on, um, on, you know, the languages that are used in those documents that they don't see the kind of stigmatizing, um, uh, sorts of words that we see on the European side of things—the um, the the language of um, of um, oh of divine wrath, of language of sin, language of um, of deviance and um, and monstrosity, which are are prevalent in accounts on the European side. It, it, but you know there is some variability over time periods too. But but, mm-hmm. but there's there's definitely some stigmatization of intersex that we see um, in at least some of the documents that are talking about um, that are talking about people who uh, European authorities didn't see as being typically male or typically female.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I I, I think that's just important. It's, it seems like it's more utilitarian on the Islamic side. Um, but it's just, I think it's just so important because there's still this idea that, you know, queerness is a white thing. Queerness doesn't belong to traditionally to people of color, communities or other cultures. So... I think that's important, another important book in, in the way you tie the past to the present. And one other question that, I, that came out of the your discussion of the monstrous races was the this going back and forth, that hermaphrodites has have this going back and forth. And um, you make this argument, I think, about transgender history and intersex history. Can you talk about these two histories and how intimately connected are they? In your research, do you find that they're, they're inextricably tied to one another. How should we think of intersex and trans and non-binary history?
0: Well, I think it makes a big difference what time period we're talking about. So let me just sort out a few things. And just in case uh, the listeners aren't uh, 100% sure what we're talking about, um, intersex and transgender are two different modern categories. Um, Intersex uh, is um, a Umbrella term that's used now, I mean, transgender and intersex are both umbrella terms, right? We're talking about a lot of different identities here, a lot of different variables. Uh, but intersex is a, a, a term for um, intersex variations or a term for um, uh, individuals whom medical authorities perceive as being not typically male or not typically female. Whereas uh, transgender, being distinct from that, um, is uh, generally we think of where somebody's inner felt gender identity or their gender practices in some way don't match up, so to speak, with the gender to which they were assigned at birth. So these are different categories. Um, although some intersex people do identify as transgender, but not, but certainly not all do. So I want to make sure that it's clear that we don't conflate these two categories. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, we recognize that there is some some um, some overlap and important connections between the two. Um, for one thing, they both suffered gender-based discrimination motivated by some similar concerns about gender crossing, about same-sex sexuality that's led to really harmful practices against both groups. Both groups have been very politically invested in um Uh, calls to human rights to bodily integrity that is the idea that people should be able to do what they want with their bodies right or Mm -hmm. or not have things that they don't want done to their bodies and um during a period of um real growth in in intersex um uh, intersex political movement some of the leaders of the movement aligned with uh, um with uh lgbt um, political activism, so there have been a lot of historic connections between the two groups, um, and so uh, I think that that's important for the modern period, and then if we're talking about the pre-modern period, this is especially so that there's important interrelation, because people aren't using the words intersex and transgender to talk about things, you know, in before 1500, of course, these were not words that they used. Um, they used words, like we said, androgen, hermaphrodite, um, you know, again, these are these are not words that we necessarily would use now, but those that's what they would use to talk about an intersex person, but also sometimes to talk about somebody who they thought transitioned between sex or someone who was engaged in same-sex sexuality, who we might in the modern world recognize as queer. So um, what we're talking about when we're talking about these past categories is, um, is, is not so clear cut. Um, we're sometimes talking about things that have to do with sex variance. And sometimes we're really talking about things that have to do with moving back and forth between different kinds of gender roles, which we would now more closely associate with transgender. So I think that that's, um, that's why it's important to analytically apply um, uh, both of these categories to that history and to recognize that this belongs to an expanded timeline of history and the historical archive for um for intersex, transgender, and non-binary gender, even as we are careful to not conflate or blur the lines between those categories for modern people, you know, who set their own, you know, set their own agendas and their own um, uh, vocabularies for how they want to be recognized.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and that's that's th- that's definitely an important question that historians always ask themselves about. Applying language from the contemporary period to the past, of course. Um, speaking of the contemporary period, <laughs> uh, you in in your introduction and your conclusion, you definitely make a case that medieval history is relevant to our contemporary moment. Why is medieval history relevant? What why should we think about it when we think about trans politics today?
0: I think that you know while I'm obviously very interested in contemporary politics and um and um very committed to um uh, movements for racial justice and trans and queer liberation Uh, i think it's an absolutely um powerful argument to be made by looking at these um time periods that and societies that are remote from ours and particularly the society of um of of pre-modern christianity It's important both in the ways that it anticipates um, and has similarity to um, some of our ways of organizing our society and building up our categories, and in in the ways that we can find resonances and similarities. It helps us to understand, in some ways, why we do the things that we do. Right? Um, Mm You know, some of these are some of the things that we experience in our world are inheritances of this period. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, the ways that things are radically different from the past can be a powerful way of allowing us to radically imagine a different future. Um, you -hmm. know, when we are able to see that people had very different ways of organizing sex and gender in the past, um, you know, we can have some sense that, uh, the way that we do it now is not a natural or timeless sort of way of understanding, um, the world and all of our places in it. And we can understand that these things are likely to continue to change in the future. So I think also um, being able to talk about uh, gender in um, a society and culture vastly removed from ours makes it easier to talk about. You know, if we get into a room just full of like queer and trans people, we will quickly find that we have many disagreements right Mm -hmm. um but if we start our conversation talking about something that is that is different from us that is outside of us sometimes that is a good place to start um it allows us to be able to um to think through some of our um some of our questions about um about why we think the way we do and why we make some of the assumptions the way we do by by using this um, uh, this um, uh, analysis of of a, a different time and place that is both foreign to us, right? That is very distinct from us, but also um, surely is um, is also interrelated with ours. Uh, so I, I I think that um, that. Uh, people will be surprised both by um, how familiar some of this from the distant past seems, mm-hmm. as well as how totally out there and, um, you know, beyond what, what we might be imagining for gender in our current time um, might be by looking at these, these past examples.
1: Mm-hmm, definitely. And it's not just different from our time period to that time period, but within the time period that you discuss, things change over time. You know, you start with early Christianity where there was a positive association in some ways with with what was called hermaphroditism or non-binary sex, and then there's kind of a fall, right? And it's and throughout the like middle chapters, it kind of gets degraded in a way. And correct me if I'm wrong, of course. And then your last chapter is the Jesus hermaphrodite, and with alchemists who who are um elevating hermaphroditism again and non-binary sex again so it, so it changes even dramatically within your book and there's so much diversity too you know you, you really draw attention to the fact that um there's there's kind of a narrative unfolding where by the end of the late middle the late middle ages and the early renaissance there is this idea that non-binary sex gets degraded, but at the same time you draw attention to like a counter tradition. Right. So, so can you talk a little bit about like how periodization figures in your book and, and the narrative arc and the narrative structure about, about non-binary gender that emerged from your research?
0: Yes. And let me just first say that it's precisely this last image I was talking about that I think can be so surprising to modern audiences, right? This so-called Jesus from Aphrodite, mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think that that's another another thing I'd like people to take away um, is I I think that when we imagine the distant past we we tend to imagine that it will certainly be um, much more repressive, much narrower in its imagination, right of of um, you know of of gender variation. But here we have images of Jesus, inarguably a central character in in history, uh, <laughs> depicted. It, it, in it, And certainly in, you know, if we might say positive terms, as non-binary sex, as an amalgam of male and female characteristics, and illustrated visually as half male and half female, um, much like those images of the monstrous races that we were talking about, um, which of course had a very different message. But here, Jesus is imagined to transcend divisions of um, of male and female gender, and this is presented, you know, non-binary gender is not here something to be erased or corrected or ejected from the community, but rather an ideal, something perfect, something, uh, aspirational, um, and something, uh, transformative and, um, having, a, uh, almost unimaginable political potential. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's where I think it's useful to turn our attention to, um, where ideas from out of time, um, might suggest to us uh, political potential in other ways. And so I guess I can come to your question about temporality. Well, you know, you've noted my, my vexed feelings about temporality, I'm <laughs> sort of, uh, uh, if, if I might say riding the line between his historicist chronological, you know, um, approaches to history and my, um, my emotional investments in in queer temporality and touching people across time, and you know, finding community in the distant past with people who we can never really know. And I think that that's uh, that's a part of what I'm trying to say in the book. Both, you know, I I, I try to be a, a a good historicist and give us something that we can hang on to in terms of a linear narrative. But by the end, I've kind of broken that down <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and said that, you know, we we really um, th- that this history goes beyond a linear reckoning of time. And that I I think it has both um, uh, emotional and political potential to um, to help us to to sort of rethink um, our relationships to um, to our, our political and historical antecedents and uh and that's something i i try to communicate in the conclusion and invite readers to think of themselves differently in time
1: certainly i think you communicate that absolutely and in, in some ways the book does conform to a narrative structure but you certainly challenge the teleological version of history that we've inherited through the discipline um and that that that's that's clear throughout. And it's challenging, I might imagine. I mean, I've never written a book, but I imagine that that's very hard to do. <laughs> um, I wanted to go back to your last chapter about Christ, the ultimate non-binary figure, I'm quoting quoting you. Um, and also, totally a surprise to me, the Philosopher's Stone, which was imbued as well through a metaphor of of the hermaphrodite with like having these transformative powers. And of course I couldn't help, but think of, you know, commander in chief of the turf army, which is right now, JK Rowling. So I wanted to ask you if first you could tell our listeners about the philosopher's stone and what you discovered in your research. And then, you know, if you could directly speak (laughs) to JK Rowling, who of course drew on the philosopher's stone in her amazing books, um, the Harry Potter Um, what, what, what would you say to her?
0: Well, let me start with the, the, uh, the philosopher's stone and alchemy. And it's, I'm so glad you asked because it really, in thinking about chronology, this really does take me all the way back to the beginning. And, uh, my first book, as you mentioned, was on alchemy and it was when I was reading alchemical texts that I first encountered, um, the, the images that, um, that set into motion this entire project. So uh, in alchemy, there's kind of an active chemical agent that's called the philosopher's stone. And this is the chemical that is thought to transmute base metals into gold or transmute um, humans into like perfect health. So it's on this seemingly almost magical substance. And over and over again in the alchemical manuscripts that I was reading for my first book, this philosopher's stone was represented as the alchemical hermaphrodite and i just couldn't help but wonder over and over again you know why were alchemists imagining this like exceptional um, transformative substance in in the guise of a non-binary figure Um, and uh, right about the time that i started to think about that and um and uh and was completing that work on my first book My partner, who is transgender, had top surgery, um, which is a form of gender-affirming surgery. And so, you know, ideas about bodies and non-binary bodies and classification and uh, language about sex and gender, I mean, it just all really was rising to the fore of what I was thinking about. And here were these images in my manuscripts that just seemed to speak to that that, um, moment both of questioning and transformation. And um, that's how I started to wonder, how did people see non-binary sex in the past? What did it mean uh, to to medicine? What did it mean to the law? What did it mean to, um, to religious authorities? What did it mean to people um, writing poetry, you know, and that's how I ended up going in so many different directions, just to try to get the shape of what um, what these figures and ideas meant for people in the past, and as a way of finding out what they might mean to me now. And uh, so that's how uh, that's that's how alchemy connected to this project, and. I think that, you know, in this very personal way, it connects strangely enough to JK Rowling. Um, Mm -hmm. because, uh, also around that same time period, my partner and I had a child who went on to become semi obsessed with Harry Potter (laughs) and, uh, who loved, loved, loved Harry Potter books. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did too. (laughs) And when, um, JK Rowling, uh, you know, said all these very transphobic things. It was extremely painful, mm-hmm. um, to my, to our family and to my son. And he said, well, I don't want to read her books anymore because she would hate us. I hate oh our gosh. family. Wow. And so I don't know that JK Rowling understands the impact of those tweets or whatever, um, you know, whatever, you know, is the nature of her turfdom, um, and what it means to all of the readers out there who care so much about her art, uh, I think it's really hard for people to separate out the art from the artist, and and particularly for children, that's difficult. So I guess that's what I would say to J.K. Rowling. <laughs> is that well, that, I hope she hears it. <laughs> that that's the impact of those statements on a reader from a transgender family. So...
1: Um, that's really powerful thank you for sharing that it's yeah I hope she reads it and your child sounds very brilliant and very strong nonetheless and yeah for the generation of us and it's continued seemingly but the generation of us who loved Harry Potter it was horrible to see all those commentary all that commentary and and to question where she Gives her money, you know, <laughs> not just tweets, but what is she doing with her fortune, you know? So, and you know, I love that though. I love that. I was gonna ask about alchemy and if it came from your first book, and you know the the way that you even started to write about this topic. Um, and and speaking of that. Um, you know, now we're getting to the end. It's been 50 minutes. Um, I did want to ask about the reception of the book. Uh, of course, it just came out and we know that it sold out. So it's definitely been received well. But is your book, con- do you think that there's controversial arguments that you make? Um, And how was the process of writing the book? What kind of and especially in the field of medieval history? What's the state of trans and queer history in medieval history? I
0: think it's growing. I, you know, I think a lot has changed since I started writing the book. Uh, I, I certainly got uh, some, some uh, reviewer feedback on the very first writings that I did from this that were skeptical of the categories and approaches that I took, but it's been a little while. And I I think, I think that medieval historians are, are, I think the world has changed a lot, and I think that they're ready for it. And there are so many young scholars doing amazing work in, um, in trans studies, um, in, in critical intersex studies, um, bringing all of their ideas and politics and voices into pre-modern, uh, studies, so I think that uh, on the one hand, if uh, anyone out there is get ever gets a you know a, a a review for an article that that thinks your article is crazy, maybe just wait, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> and um, you know it it might be that um, that your approach is just fine, um, and uh, and also um, you know I really am excited about um, you know the way forward for all of these emerging researchers. I think who are really uh, shaking up um, uh, ancient and medieval uh, history and studies in in a really wonderful way, um, and and not just um, in um, in in terms of uh, trans studies, but critical race studies in, in pre-modern, um, and pre-modern history, and especially in ancient and medieval history, is just a really burgeoning and exciting field, um, and so. Um, I would say the state of the field is it's good, <laughs> and that uh, there's a there are a lot of new thinkers and new ideas coming into it that have really reinvigorated it for me and a lot of other scholars. And I've really enjoyed learning from um, from these younger researchers.
1: That's wonderful. That's really great to hear. And it's good, you know, to keep pushing forward, even if your work, even if you doubt the the utility of your work and your approach. Well, Leah, I the last comment that I wanted to make is that your book, you can totally tell that it's infused with love. Um, you tell us in the acknowledgments that your partner is non binary trans and you dedicate it to Macaulay as well. And you can, you know, it, it, it's definitely it's definitely there. The love is there. And I appreciate it as a trans non binary person myself. And I'm sure many people will. And so I just, I hope that everybody reads your book. It's a wonderful book and congratulations. Thank you so
0: much. And thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I've just really, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. You too.